0: i'm sorry but this this just reminds me of the episode we just released previously about things being done the same way and doing a new way breaking programs and paradigms and the way you worked like that sounds very familiar to a certain person saying that the way that he works is not going to be compatible with D because the new way of doing things is going to break his old patterns hmm.
1: well um let's talk about that another time shall we yay let's just just pretend like you didn't say anything good
0: Okay, Jeff, we have a bunch of feedback in the mailbag. So uh, you want to do a feedback episode?
1: I think it's it's time for a feedback episode.
0: Yeah, I'd like to sprinkle it in other episodes, but there's a good chunk of it that kind of... A lot of it all goes together, so I think we also just throw it all together and roll with it.
1: Okay, let's do it like a lasagna.
0: Yeah. So this feedback was specifically from the Matrix channel, which you're not in, which you should probably get in there. I keep
1: meaning to. You should make that happen. Uh, I watched the Matrix movie recently. That's the same thing, right? Yeah,
0: that's, that's not related, no. <laughs> so, it's anyway. So, I hopefully will get everyone's name right. If I get it wrong, I'm sorry. Tell me how it's supposed to be pronounced phonetically. Ella Ghost. This is feedback from Ella Ghost. And he goes, all right, here it comes. On no one should have the right to create proprietary software at all issue. I think that deserves a bit more nuance. There's no reason why people and companies can't have private matters. I don't take issue with companies creating software, likely that is internally open source, and using it to make their processes better. Internal tools are fair game for a company to have. Now, to be clear for anyone who's not sure where this comes from, this was from a prior comment in the Matrix channel of someone saying that they didn't think anyone should have the right to create proprietary software. Um, So now that everybody's back up to speed, let me continue with what Elgast said. But as soon as the software is intended for public consumption, especially software that handles personal data, it should in the very least be source-available. Tarballs chucked over a fence with no Git history are fine in this case. I'd equate the source-available model to listing ingredients on a bag of chips. You don't have a clue about the dev tools, library versions, or build environment, but you know at a very basic level what's in it. I like that analogy.
1: That's good.
0: Yeah, I I like that as well. He says, I think that's something that I believe should be mandatory. I don't really have a preferred license in this case. I prefer community-developed software that I can contribute to if I find a bug and can read commit history and stuff. But at the very least, I think that for the public good, people should be able to know what their computer is eating.
1: I like that. That's, That's well put.
0: Yeah, and he finishes up with, is there a meaningful argument against this? Is there a reason that software distributed to people should be closed source? And I responded... I would agree that software that's being used in the public space should be open. I think any software used by the government should be open, with the exception of maybe military software. And Elgost agreed. Anything that needs to be top secret should be kept that way. And I responded, and ideally, I prefer all software to be open. But that being said, if you need a simple program that does thing, and someone decides to make it, and you're willing to use it, even if it's closed source, that's a choice that you as an individual should be allowed to make. Right. For Mm -hmm. me, the key point is that as a society, we should continue to push for openness. Kind of like how, as a society, we influence how people behave in public. There are some things that are laws, but a lot are things that people decide to do because it's beneficial for them to do so, even if it's not a law. I'd like open source to be that way, i.e. companies choose to do it for the benefits it gets them, rather than be mandated by law. Elgast responds... Often companies won't do it unless there's a financial situation. I think we would do good to financially reward openness or punish being closed, I responded. Mm. I think we as a community should keep pushing things to be open, and I think in time it'll become the standard through everyone realizing that it's the best option. People are more willing to accept and write open software and hardware when it's a decision that they've made versus a decision they were forced into. He responded, I would agree with that. That's He responded, that's true. It's hard to bully someone into something they're supposed to like, I guess. And I said, I'll make sure to bring this all up with Jeff on the show so he can give his input since he's not here. Hint, Jeff, sign up on the Matrix server. Right. And see if anyone else has other input as well. And he responded, I've too often seen and heard of companies having internal machines stuck on Windows 98 because they use software made by a company that went out of business and only runs 98 for some reason. Openness solves that problem, and we're at a point where still using ancient operating systems is a public danger. I'm not sure where I'd go with that, but I think it's important for people to realize that. And my final comment in this issue was, yes, a thousand times this. I ran into this problem when I tried to run my own Palm Trio a few years ago and couldn't get software activated because the license servers were dead. And of course, there was no way for me to patch the software and get it running again. So, Jeff,
1: thoughts? So, first of all, very elegant discussion. I really like several of the characterizations in there. I, I'm, I'm interested in this. Um, an old computer is dangerous to the public good. And uh, just to pluck one thing out of the discussion, uh, that one kind of struck me as uh, my immediate thought was, well, that, that how can that be dangerous to the public good? If someone wants to destroy their own personal life and, by having Windows 98 in their house, and it's trivial to crack, then that's their own fault. We're all kind of connected now and what one does affects another person tacitly, not overtly. So we kind of all need to have a base level of security, I guess, we're all adhering to. And then
0: I also think it, it matters with what he's referring to is mm-hmm. the fact that companies do this. Right. And they have these old legacy systems. This is not a home user deciding, Oh yeah, I'm gonna do this. This is a business deciding we're gonna keep running outdated software and what that business does may actually affect the end consumer. Okay. Um, I mean, old ATMs are still running you know, Windows 95 or mm-hmm. OS2 Warp, and
1: that's OS2 kind warp. of a problem. Yeah. That's
0: your money at, that someone can get at the ATM if they're clever, uh, and you're the one that suffers, and mm-hmm. you don't have a choice in it. So I think that's kind of where he's going with that aspect. Okay, yeah, that makes sense.
1: Right. Now, I understand also, let's say... The old product that requires you to have a Windows N8 machine hanging around is open source. Not, that's it. Just because something is open source does not mean the company has the resources to go and fix it or modernize it. Some of the stuff, like the jump from Windows 2000 and XP to Windows Vista, was hazardous. We'll just put it gently hazardous. Because for the first time ever, Microsoft was starting to enforce more higher security standards and, and a user model that actually made sense and wasn't just like trivial to break. And lots of programs were written under the auspices of, oh, there's no security. There's nothing to worry about. We can just do whatever we want. Uh, we're always the administrator all the time, so don't think about it. And part of the reason Vista got such a bad rap was because, yeah, they changed a lot of things. They changed things in the way that needed to be done. And programs were not ready for it. So that's on the programs. But
0: I'll I'm sorry, but this this just reminds me of the episode we just released previously about things being done the same way and doing a new way, breaking programs and paradigms in the way you worked. Like that sounds very familiar to a certain person saying that the way that he works is not going to be compatible with Home D. Because the new way of doing things is going to break
1: his old patterns. Hmm. Well, um, let's talk about that another time, shall we? Yay, let's just, just pretend like you didn't say anything there. No, but... um, No, nah, you totally threw me off my game there. Let me see if I can recapture my thought. Thank you for that. Where was I going? Oh, Windows Vista. Uh, a side note, uh, Windows 7, was it? That was just a respin of Vista. Whatever it was that came after Vista. It was the same thing with a different skin. But by then, lots of programs had been converted to use the newer model and the, and the better security and this, that, and another. And so there's a lot more acceptance. It was literally the same thing. But not literally. I mean, they, were, they were minor improvements. But you know, a lot of the things that were promised in Vista, they still weren't in seven. You know, Longhorn, whatever happened to Longhorn, that was gone.
0: Yeah, whatever happened to that new Windows file system oh, that uh, was coming out in Vista? Right. Oh,
1: yeah, that's right. We still don't have it. Still don't have it. Oh, well, I'm sure they do have it internally, but it was not of sufficient quality to release, or maybe it was not um, palatable to users, they thought, or something. I'm sure I'm sure they have it, much like uh, OS X was, was written, you know, it was power PCs it was running on, but they still had an x86 fork. They kept maintaining the x86 fork and they decided, okay, time to jump off of the power architecture and go over to x86 because then IBM can't give us our chips. Magically, they didn't really have to do any work because they already had the fork of it. They already had the, you know, the, the, the version mm-hmm. of it. So they had all along kind of been looking ahead to that. So I imagine there's, there's some of that going on too. Let's get back to the, I'm getting far afield from the, the feedback here. Uh, I was trying to go into an example of, let's say the company has the code, the source code to the program that only works on windows 98 can they really i guess they could pay someone that had the expertise to upgrade it like this is a risk to their business i honestly believe that a lot of companies would choose to continue to use the windows 98 even if they had the source and had the freedom and the ability to improve their plight they would continue exactly as they are now because it costs them no money it doesn't cost them anything to keep a machine on Windows 98 there's no subscription cost you bought the license 20 years ago whenever it was that came out yeah 98 is 22 years old so you paid for the license a long time ago you paid for the hardware a long time ago it's some cost they don't want to put any more cost into it they don't have to now at some point someone does the evaluation say it's costing us you know one and a half you know man months per month just to maintain this thing this system and try and make sure that we don't get hacked from it it's worth it for us to put that time instead towards writing a new something or upgrading the code or whatever. I think it's a problem that solves itself. I just believe there's going to be a lot of companies that, even if open source is mandated for these things, would still do nothing. So you can't protect those companies from themselves. But for those of us that would see the value of it and go ahead and invest in it, I think it's, it's it's difficult for me to imagine the situation where you could fix anything because I'm so used to how things are now, but I would love that, honestly.
0: Yeah, I think, though, if it was open source and people knew how old it was, there's bound to be people, though, that would go, there's a niche, let me go there and work on that. You're probably right, yeah. And as far as the sunken cost, I totally I totally agree with you, however... You know, companies invested a lot into Windows and Windows server licenses and they still went to Linux and they still decided to pay for Linux support because it was better. Yeah. Because it could offer more. Mm-hmm. So I think that the delay in a company going, Okay, well, we're we're not gonna change is shorter than you might be giving it credit them credit for. Okay. Because at the end of the day, companies are looking at the bottom line Absolutely. and when you can make a strong case that this is a better solution and it does affect the bottom line companies are going to trend that way they're not going to trend that way instantly but they mm-hmm. are going to trend that way and i don't think that it's going to take decades for that to happen i mean we can just see the massive adoption that's happened just in the past five years right yeah. and you know Companies have realized now. Oh, this is an advantage. And if you are the security guy at a company and you know, oh, our company is using this old Windows ninety eight box that's still connected to the internet. Oh
1: gosh! Uh, oh gosh! Oh, that, and please. we haven't.
0: An, and we have an option to update to something that is secure, and we can do it for nothing. Yeah, that's going to be an argument that's going to be made and settled pretty darn quick.
1: Well, there's still the cost at the time to do it. So it's not just the dollars to improve the solution or whatever. There is Right, but I'm saying
0: if there's an open source, if the software is open source and people Mm -hmm. can develop it, Mm -hmm. then that development would be ongoing. So at that point, all that matters is when does the company reach that point of the man hours to transition to the updated software is equal to or less than the man hours of constantly needing to
1: keep up this system. So I'm going to contest a little bit because it seems like, you know, I, I said sunk cost earlier. You leave a system alone. Ideally, it coasts forever. We know that's not actually true, but uh, we would hope that uh, the system isn't touched by anybody. And, you know, I think also, so think about, I, I know, like a defense contractor is going to have old tools, or I know that the Navy was running around with Windows 95 systems, and they had the, They built their ships to run on Windows 95 or whatever, and they're kind of stuck with it. Or this is, I read this many years ago. I don't know if that's still true. One would hope it's not true, but I don't know. And the way they got around the security challenges was they had something that was like constantly re-imaging the system like every three seconds to make sure there was nothing that could really change it. Like, okay, we'll just freeze it in place. Like this can't be unfrozen. And that was a solution. Not a good solution, but it's a solution. If you're stuck on it, or some of the the highly custom stuff, like uh, air traffic control software is 40 years old. I don't know if it's open or closed source. I wouldn't expect it to be open, but I would expect, there's also those cases where the code technically isn't open, but you have a copy of it, like an old simulator or old this or old that so that you can compile it on a new architecture if you need. There's also the thinking that not every open source project is gonna get patches. There's a lot of abandonware out there that is open source. So I don't know that it's fair to say that every product that is open source, someone's going to be interested enough to submit a patch to it. There's a lot of counterexamples to that. If there's one user or two users of a thing, unless that user cares deeply about it, they're not going to be any patches because there's one or two users. And if that user is content with the status quo, why would they invest effort in it? Honestly.
0: Okay, so I think with the open source thing, um, I, I think this, I understand where you're going, and I agree with the trajectory. But I think if there is a need, that people will go towards that need, because there's, I agree. people that love finding those niche problems mm-hmm. and addressing them. Mm-hmm. And let's take let's take uh, avionics software for instance, uh, mm-hmm. air traffic control, or whichever of those two you want to discuss. If if it's open source and nobody's actively developing it well first there's the does it actually do what it needs to do Mm -hmm. and if it's open source well hey we can see that and we can see that well there isn't really more of a need for this application if the need arises then because it's open source all of the avionics companies can actually do something about that and help Uh, right now they use linux because it just it works Mm -hmm. i know boeing boeing used to do a lot of development in linux like i don't know how much it is now but a lot of the actual applications and software that they run are written in ADA because they are designed to do one thing, to do one thing <laughs> only and do it one way only and nothing else, oh. which is one of the reasons why they went with ADA is because they do not need the possibility for all these other things to happen because mm. it effectively is a state machine. You have a certain set of states that are acceptable and anything outside of that is a no. We're not going there. You're not allowed to go there. Don't even think about going there. So- I think in situations like that, it being open source is beneficial because, A, everybody can see it, they can investigate it, they can look at it, but also, if there ever does need to be a need uh, need to change things, it's possible for someone to do it. Maybe it won't be needed anytime soon, but why would we shut that door on having that option? I agree with that. Another thing is, like, for instance, if, if we talk about ATMs. That is something that's definitely a niche market, and there's bound to be some company somewhere that would love to, if the software was open source, be able to go in, inspect it, fix all the problems, and then be able to go to the banks and go, hey, you know that software you're running from your ATM? Yeah, let's talk about all the things we could do that you're liable for. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. and once you hit that liability, you cross into a, okay, how much could this potentially cost? It's not even about what it will cost us. Mm -hmm. How much will this potentially cost us if there's an issue? And then once you get to that point, you have the accountants and the lawyers going, okay, hold on. I know this is going to cost us a lot to do this migration or to go in this direction, Mm -hmm. but trust us, the lawsuits that we're going to get if something happens are going to far out dwarf that. So let's spend $10 million now. yeah. Yeah. Now that then goes into, of course, as you mentioned, risk analysis and what that matters. If it's financial, if it's security, if it's defense- if it's infrastructure, those things are going to matter. For mom and pop running a burger shop, maybe not so much. But mom and pop running a burger shop also don't have such specific needs <laughs> that there isn't already open source software out there that they could
1: use. Possibly. Maybe, maybe there's a, they've got a burger flipper machine and it only runs Windows 98. You know, It's some it's, it's, um, appliance or something. Because there were an awful lot of appliances built on Windows 98 and Windows 2000. A lot of them. Mm-hmm. And some of them are still out there. Yeah, I think actually
0: one of the times we were at Self, we were back in their maintenance area helping them with wiring and stuff, and their control system is, I think it's either 98 or 2000.
1: Oh, gosh, that's painful. But I mean,
0: for them, it doesn't really do anything. Right. It's an appliance. uh, It
1: just, whatever happens in the background, they don't care. To them, it's a box that blinks and does the thing, right? So there's a lot of that too, you know, abandoned Mm -hmm. appliances, abandoned uh, software, abandoned systems. And there's there's kind of fun sometimes to just kind of pick apart. There's been a you know team at self the last three or four years that have, I don't know, some ridiculous number of these closed source um wireless access points. You know, they were back in the day, they were quite high quality. I, I've picked up yep. two or three of them with the intention to get in there and try and hack it open and see what I could do to get some firmware on there and that's what they were giving away for like Someone mm-hmm. somewhere is going to crack this. We're just going to keep giving out samples until someone figures it out, or we run out of samples, in which case we'll see what happens. You know. Right. And I, I've taken a look at it several times, and it's like impenetrable fortress. It's I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I run up against my own ignorance very quickly. But I like the idea of doing it, and maybe I just don't have that skill set that can work around that. Maybe I'm, I'm rusty or something. I, I'm kind of rusty on my red team stuff, to be honest. So. Yeah, well, something. on those
0: on those units specifically because i know which ones you're talking about mm-hmm. you would need to dump multiple rom chips on the board mm-hmm. and then figure out how to decode them so like that's very that. specific that's very specific reverse engineering knowledge and mm-hmm. you need a lot of nice equipment for that yep i don't have any of that nice equipment at my house uh-huh. so <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure you don't I either don't
1: either right uh well i think i have a logic analyzer somewhere but it's more than that you know there's there's more like bus timing and a lot of there's a lot of stuff to do to get all that information out of there you know I, i'm not equipped for it but uh maybe i had a romantic idea that i could figure it out when someone else couldn't maybe there's just hubris yeah I, I had
0: that same romantic idea when i picked up one and uh, it
1: didn't <laughs> go anywhere either it's sitting in my closet i'm looking at it actually right over there and i gave one to my dad maybe i was thinking my dad can he's a smart guy maybe he'll take a crack at it and he'll figure out something i don't know he did not figure it out either
0: Maybe somebody yeah, will. this is one of those things if I ever win the lottery, which I, I would need to play first in order to be able to win. Right, right. It's, it's, I think that's how that works. Um Generally. I would I would I would take one and like be like, okay, I'm putting a bounty on this hundred grand who can do it. And I'm pretty sure someone within a year it. it would happen. Mm-hmm.
1: Hunter grand is enough to get someone to stop what they're doing and devote time to it. Yeah. Absolutely. Like a bug bounty. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So we actually have more feedback along this line. And this is feedback from uh, our person at G that we uh, ah. that brought up this entire topic. Yes, um, He responded. He goes, I am listening to episode 15. Now I do think that the needs of the group outweigh the needs of the individual. Although I would certainly not take that as far as I would, as I would the licensing deal. Individuals should obviously have rights. There is a, certainly a point where prioritizing the group over an individual is wrong. If someone writes code, that code should be Libre. Someone shouldn't be forced to write code. I responded with, I agree that code writers should choose the li- to license their code in a liberate way. They should choose to to do it in an open source way that everyone can see it and benefit from it. But I do not feel that they should be made to license their code that way. That's a very dangerous precedent to set, in my opinion, because what you are in fact putting in place is the idea that if you do this thing, the result of your effort does not belong to you. It yes. belongs to everyone. And I can understand why there's things that should be like that, but I think that's a voluntary decision that you should agree to, Mm -hmm. not you don't have a choice. And I stated that this is literally what happened in Soviet Russia with farmers. The state ruled that the food that the farmers grew did not belong to the farmers. It belonged to the state. Mm -hmm. And if a farmer was found holding back food to feed their family more than what the state felt their family should get, they were prosecuted and sometimes killed because it was legally interpreted as them stealing public property wow. because they didn't own the, the the product the the crops the state did
1: mm-hmm. We have an analog to this that... here in the United States you know some states it's illegal to collect rainwater because that is the common good and i have long wanted to i mean I, I live in a the suburbs there's not really much room for it there's uh, I can collect rainwater for like watering plants, but like water collecting rainwater writ large i'm thinking. We get all this water coming from the sky. If I can collect it and put it in a cistern, why don't I just source my water from that? Wouldn't I be lessening my impact on the environment? But in some states, that's not legal because whatever, watershed laws or something. That water that falls drifts eventually and fills the watersheds that affect everybody. And so they don't want you to get in the way of that. They don't see it as you're saving your consumption of the watershed now. They, they see it as uh, you're preventing the water from making it to where the other public can use it. Some we're thinking, mm-hmm. not quite the same, and I really don't care for that at all. I really despise that. Yeah, so. there's a
0: there's a bunch of potential legal attacks against that, which I don't know where they've gone in certain states, mm-hmm. because I mean, effectively, that comes down to property rights laws. But of course, you only own so far up above your property, mm-hmm. and then it's no longer yours. So the question is, if something starts up there and comes down, who is it, is it yours now because it's on your property, mm-hmm. or if it's not, can you then find you know, the state who owns the rain because their rain caused damage on your property. Like there's a whole lot of ways to to go at that and attack that. Maryland, on the other hand, decided that they're just gonna skirt this issue and they're not gonna make it illegal. We're just gonna tax you on every square foot of ground that you do not allow the rain to soak in.
1: Actually that's actually not a bad solution. So I still don't like it, but it's the So if you put up a pool
0: to collect water, mm-hmm. the square footage of the pool gets taxed. If you have a driveway that's non-porous, that gets taxed. Your house, how much land does it cover, that gets taxed. It all is based on how much you're not allowing
1: the water to seep in.
0: Now, even mm-hmm. though it hits your roof and then rolls off the side and then goes into the ground, yeah. doesn't matter, you're still getting taxed.
1: I would be very unhappy about that. Cause I'm like, look, I'm not pr- impeding the rain's progress at all. Mm-hmm. You're losing maybe 10, for, 10 to 15% of it going not down to the ground. Let's just say 10%, that's a, healthy overestimation of how much rainwater is being wasted. That's a lot of water
0: that's getting into your house. Yeah, exactly. That much water is soaking in.
1: Okay, so 2%. I'm not, I just, I would, I would be like, I'm not paying that tax. You know, go pound sand. Of course.
0: So, well, you don't have an option because it's Mm -hmm. Maryland. I would leave You're going to pay it.
1: I guess that's one of the things that would prevent me from living in Maryland. But yeah. So one of the arguments
0: actually against that very point is because your house is sitting on dirt, the water that hits your roof does not get to that dirt. Now, you might say, oh, well, it, it hits the gutter and it goes out back. Right, but then where the water is dispensed hits the point of saturation to where it's not actually absorbed anymore and it runs off. So, wow. but that's, okay. that's a tangent that yeah. we, could, we could go on. That's but if you're curious,
1: dude.
0: look up the Maryland rain tax for anybody that wants to know more of how deep this wow. rabbit hole goes.
1: Wow. Anyway, I, I brought that up only to, to, to say that, you know, the same thing is happening here. Not the same. Very similar thing is happening here. And it can be used Mm -hmm. as an analog to this discussion. Yeah. I wouldn't like being told, you can't collect rainwater. Much like I would would not like to be told, you can't close this source. When you're writing this code, then you have to make it open. I would do, if if this was somehow mandatory, I would say, do the Maryland model. I can write closed source, but I have to pay for it. I I don't know Mm -hmm. how you would tax that. I have no idea. But that would be a democratic way and we can haggle over the price you know lines of code suddenly my writing my inscrutable pearl becomes a valued asset because i'm only writing two lines of pearl instead of 40 lines of code and it costs me less tax okay that's contrived but at that point in this glorious future where all code is open unless you pay you know pay for it not to be Mm -hmm. i can make money on closed source software as long as the money i'm making is more than the tax i would have to pay on the closed source so right. i can still make the economics work for me if i'm in a captured industry or i'm writing a tool for like defense contractor that they desperately need some maybe a tool for uh tsmc that makes them have better routing on their chips or something some some pattern tool whatever take like it something that it's worth it to me to close the source or a simulator for trolling studies or something because there's millions and millions of dollars in there. They're going to be willing to pay. And I think I can afford the closed source price. One would hope.
0: Well, so then there's an interesting question. Who pays the tax? Do you pay the tax as the writer or does the business pay the tax as the user?
1: I think it'd be like a VAT kind of thing. Because
0: you can write software once, but that software could be used by a thousand different corporations for 20 years each. So I have a feeling the government is going to actually tax the use of it Mm-hmm. Not the writing. So
1: it'd be a VAT on top of the licensing that I would charge, and I don't know how they would just uh, you know decide how much that VAT would be. I have no idea. Maybe it would just be straight uh, the value of the license. The more you have closed source and you charge a hundred thousand dollars a year for this, so twenty percent of that is twenty thousand dollars in tax if they have to pay to us. So it's one hundred twenty thousand dollars. Maybe that's that's and it's a bit contrived, but that I do not like a future where I can never write closed source code. And Mm -hmm. I don't see a situation where I am writing closed source code. What I write that I write in my own spare time, I I tend to release or share with people. Maybe I'm not like formally putting on GitHub and say, Hey, everybody have at it, but I'm not closing the source either. I'm like, God, you can have this, whatever you want. You know, I noodled on this. It's terrible quality because I only spent an hour noodling on this. Maybe you can do something better with it. Go ahead, have at it. Mm -hmm. But that's my choice to do so. The second you tell yeah. me I don't have a choice is when I get ornery and I start picking fights with you because you told me I don't mm-hmm. have a choice. And you've yeah. witnessed this.
0: Yeah. Just like you, uh, the, uh, thought experiment you had about being forced to use home D and, and what you were going to do with it. Well, you're just going um, to keep hammering bring, me about to that, bring that episode back. Yes, I am.
1: Okay. Well, there um, I've given you a yeah. club. You've, I've armed you with a club. Go ahead. Use it.
0: Yeah. I, I'm in the same boat. I think, I think it should be a user or, or an individual choice because I know some people will write this off instantly as the slippery slope argument, Mm -hmm. but once this gets applied to one type of job, it's going to be, that application is going to be stretched. And we know this because every single time the government does something small over time, it stretches and it stretches and it gets bigger and it gets bigger Mm -hmm. and you never see the government going, okay, we're going to actually scrub all that off and get rid of that. Like that doesn't happen. Government is always trying to claw more under the, the rules and everything that they have. And this, this is the thing where it's like, it's, it's really simple to just, oh, no, no, we're only going to do it this one time, just this, just this one time, like the Patriot Act. Oh, we're only just going to use it just for terrorists. We're never going to use a national security letter for other reasons. No, 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 it's never going to happen. Oops, it happens.
1: Well, I'll say um, it does happen occasionally. Uh, living in Texas, growing up in Texas, uh, our legislature only meets for something like 120 days every two years, and we try and make the most of that 120 days. A lot of the pre-work uh, happens kind of, it's homework for the legislators, and then they come and they make all their votes, and it's a flurry of, of politicking, and, and everything gets done quickly. But in Texas, they have a tendency to knock down systems which are not working well. Hood is uh, one that comes to mind immediately. For 15 or 20 years, Robin plan said that the rich school districts in Texas would pay a tax on the property tax they were collecting to fund themselves, and that tax would be redistributed to poor school districts. Now, they kind of messed up in that it was supposed to be redistributed to poor school districts in the region, which meant if you had a uh, an ex- you know a high value region, then it went from the higher value school districts to the middle-value school districts instead of going, like, out to West Texas where it really would have been useful. But it was discovered that this just wasn't working, and it was actually changed or eliminated. It was just, uh, we in Texas are willing to destroy legislature that doesn't work. And maybe that's an mm-hmm. uncommon thing where kind of small government is is kind of running through a lot of people's veins. And I'll say this also, there's been a lot of people that have joined Texas in the last five to ten years, and maybe they they have a different opinion. So I don't know that it will continue this way, but historically in Texas we do, we are willing to cut ties with legislation that doesn't work. So mm-hmm. it does happen. Yeah,
0: and this is yeah, and this is one of the reasons why I actually wish that more things were controlled by individual states, so they could all do their own thing and try mm-hmm. things out in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're talking about software, this is going to be a national issue. This is not going to be a state issue for taxes. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a national issue, and of course the only way to enforce this is by threat of punishment by the state. Mm -hmm. And I I mean like government state, not just like the state of Maryland or the state of Virginia or the Mm -hmm. state of Texas. So, but as soon as you now say, okay, well, the government has the right by force of punishment or threat control what software industries use and how they do it and all that stuff. Well, now we've just found ourselves with government controlled industries as the government dictates how the industry has to run. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's not where we want to go because that never works
1: out well. Yeah, always going to be some kind of Cobra effect there. You know, the people yeah. will adapt to the new system to take advantage of the loopholes or take advantage mm-hmm. of something. There's always going to be some knock-on effect,
0: always. Yep, and someone else chimed in on this conversation, oh, uh, cool. Ulfnik, and said, service to the whole before self is an ideal I expect all healthy societies would push. Okay?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Although, if it's service without choice, it turns a call to altruism into a call to obey, which is an entirely different incentive structure. I agree. I absolutely agree. 100% agree.
1: Very well and put. And he
0: ends with, a great saying from the USSR was, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. I think the removal from, of choice just moves the same problem up the chain. Specifically, it's the problem of control. Mm-hmm. I agree. Mm-hmm.
1: That's, that's, that's wise and elegant. Well put. I'm yep. totally on board with that. That's a good kind of a coda to that discussion do we have any more feedback yeah we do we oh, do excellent
0: a, a tangent sort of on where that whole uh response originally came from was on the patent license issue oh, and okay. a typical colonel gave us some and he goes uh on your patent license topic sh- and he asked a question should a company be allowed to transfer a patent or copyright should a patent be invalidated if a company or person doesn't use it for x amount of time if patents and copyrights were immediately invalidated if a company that cannot use it for their line of business purchases it aka copyright trolls would this solve the abuse problem not like trade and i started th- i started thinking about it yeah if there was a something similar to the way trademark is done where
1: if you do not use it mm-hmm. then you, you have to lose vigorously it, defend that's... it even if it's ridiculous to defend it you have to because otherwise you could lose it
0: well, it's not It's not just the defense of it. It's the you have to use the product mm-hmm. in an active way. So you can't just buy up all these copyrights and then go around and your business model is literally just suing people because you're not actually using the copyright or the content or the patent. You're just suing, suing other people's use of it. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what he's getting at. Okay. If they are not being used in your daily business or in your business or however that gets defined, which obviously is the, you know, the specifics that would need to be defined. Right. Yes. If a company bought a patent and didn't ever do anything with it, as in they don't produce an object or a thing that uses that patent, should there be a time period, five years, I don't know, that at that point then the patent expires because they're not using
1: it. So it has to be renewed because then, with, some, with some like demonstrations of usage.
0: Right, because then at that point, they can't buy patents just to, okay, we're gonna wait and then we're gonna sue somebody. Mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting way to mm-hmm. get around the problem of copyright and patent trolls. I don't know if it would work. I would like to see if well, it could work. I can tell you what, what I can what guarantee Industries is not going to
1: like it. No, no, no. But well, this is what happens in the prescription industry. So they have uh, patents that expire on medications. And what they'll do to renew patents or somehow, I, I don't fully understand how this works because it seems like the core patent for the original medication expires. You can't do anything about it. But you move uh, a new formulation you, you tweak it slightly and it's not the same thing because it's not the exact same formulation and you can patent the new thing and mm-hmm. you can continue to make the new thing and perpetuate your, your patent in, I don't want to say in perpetuity, but for very, very long time, uh, keep making combinations or take two things that are currently patent unencumbered, stick them together. That combination can be patented. Now there's some medications out right now that do that. And it's like, well, the two sources, the two precursors, they're unencumbered. Anyone can make generics of them. But you put the two of them together, you can't do that. So there are always ways to get around this, and companies that are making tons of money on it will find those ways and continue to use them. And then there's always the lobbyist approach, like what Disney does, what we talked about before. Just just mm-hmm. buy enough lobbying so that people keep expanding the copyright and you get to keep your Disney under control, or you keep your, your yeah. mouse, whatever. I there's think, I think his that.
0: feedback... I think his feedback was specifically, though, around the copyright troll industry or the yes. patent troll industry, and which I is like only yeah. buying specifically to be able to sue people.
1: I, I like the thought. I actually think it would work very well that you have to show, you have to demonstrate you are using it somehow and not just suing people. Like, you're actively licensing your product out um, to be used by somebody else or you are broadcast broadcasting it or something. I don't know how how to define that. That would need to be better defined by someone smarter than I that's more steeped in the laws of that. But surely there's a way to define it such that you can define usage and if you're not you have a short time with which you can patent troll somebody but it expires unless you show that you're continuing to use it. And I think that would be a very big step forward. Because it would knock a lot, because patents are generally 25 years I think. So that's kind of a long time for patent troll that's happened a bunch of times where a patent troll will buy something that's 15 or 16 years old and they have nine years left in court to go and prosecute someone. And that's plenty of time for them to go to the mattresses with somebody else and make $400 million. And even if mm-hmm. it takes them four years to make that $400 million, that's part of the business model, you know, they're yeah. in this for the long haul.
0: Yeah. And if we think about technology 20 years or 25 years, whatever, that's a very that's, long time. Yeah. I mean, Think about the computers that we were using 25 years ago. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it's, yeah. Yep, I uh, yes. And uh, it, that's eons in our business. Mm-hmm. It seriously is. Now, Linux yeah. uh, was is only 28 years old, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, Linux has been under patent, quote unquote, or has been released from patent, if you think of it that way. It's only been out well, for two years. Well, it's copyright,
0: not patent. Okay, but... okay,
1: I'm just, I guess I'm using it as an example of, think of the length of time that Linux has been out, it's only been free if you were to if you were to encumber it with a patent or a copyright or something like that. It's only been well, well no, worked. because under
0: this under the suggested thing, it's continuing development. It's continuing use,, right. so they wouldn't lose it, okay so
1: yeah, okay there there is a lot of merit there. I think that there's something something that could be explored. Mm-hmm. I think would be um, it would need to be beaten on with hammers by people that do patent law and copyright law, and uh, almost certainly they would have something to say about that. but I think it's actually not a bad way to proceed. I mean, does the EFF have it? Because I know they spend a lot of time and lawyer lawyer fees on studying and advocating for the enhanced rights of
0: mm-hmm. people
1: that are using patents or copyrights or, or trying to diminish the power of a patent troll. They spend a lot of their effort on that, which is one reason I support them. Surely they've studied this. We should maybe follow up with that and see if they have anything to say about this thing. No. Maybe there's another organization that has done this work too, but they, they immediately came to mind. So after, yeah. Yeah, we'll maybe talk about that, uh, revisit that in a future episode.
0: Okay, that's a. And uh, a typical colonel finishes up with two final cents, two, two of them. Says also, JT, keep on ambushing and teasing Jeff. You got it, <laughs> good sir. You got it. I will, I will absolutely keep doing that. And on that vein, on that vein, Elagost. He he chimed in on a comment that you made in a lat, in a previous episode. Uh text that's gone hyper. And he says, Big thumbs up from me. So
1: you've got a fan <laughs> on that one, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Or madam. That's funny. Yeah. Well great. Thank you for the feedback, guys and gals. That that's I, I love hearing this and I love the discussion that comes out of this. And you know, we have our thoughts and we argue back and forth and we like to chase squirrels and, and explore tangents, but Really, it's the feedback from people that have studied and really sit there and consider through what we've said. I love that the most, you know, the the Mm -hmm. feedback episodes. I really have the most fun with these. So keep sending us feedback, and uh, we'll keep making fun of each other.
0: Yeah, and we actually have one more piece that we're going to save for later. Okay. Um, But it's some feedback about JavaScript.
1: Oh. Specifically
0: about my spicy comments about JavaScript.
1: That sounds like a future episode
0: to me. So, yeah, you're going to have to tune in for... uh, for the uh, fireworks that are gonna come from this one.
1: Well, I will add some of my own ranting about JavaScript in there since it'll be topical. So look forward to that. Yep.
0: So thanks for listening, send us your feedback, let us know what you think, and thanks for tuning in.